Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Popular Music. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thank you for joining me. Today, my guest is the author D.X. Ferris, who has written Rain and Blood, which was published by Continuum Press in 2008. Rain and Blood is part of the 33 and the third series of books published by Continuum. Each book in the series is written by different authors and The books themselves are dedicated to individual albums that the authors believe are particularly artistically significant. DX is without question a passionate advocate for the band Slayer and their 1986 landmark thrash metal album, Rain and Blood, which will be the subject of our conversation today. I think the richness and the uh, enthusiasm of the conversation that follows really reflects the fact that DX was able to speak to many of the principles involved with the making of the record, including members of Slayer, members of the engineering and production team, the artist that designed the very controversial cover for this album. And so uh, this is a uh, certainly one of the more um, wide ranging and uh, loose conversations I've had on the podcast, but I really enjoyed it. So I'm going to step out of the way here and get to the conversation with DX. Hi, DX. Hey, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It has been a, a pleasure to make your acquaintance. Oh, same here. Um, so we are speaking to writer DX Ferris about his book, Rain and Blood, which is part Hello. of the 33 and a third album series, which was published by Continuum Press. And, yeah, it's uh, not. Continuum is owned by uh, Bloomsbury. Okay. Uh, it's, it's technically part of, the, uh, part of the academic wing of Bloomsbury. It's considered, but technically that puts me on the same press as Neil Gaiman. So I will take that. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So, and, it, and the book um, the book came out in 2008. So DXR, usually we uh, start this off by allowing you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, about your background and how you came to write this particular book. Man, well, uh, I, I am uh, 40, give or take, if that gives you an idea where I'm coming from. Uh, long story short, I'm a Gen Xer. So I graduated high school in 1990. Uh, if I could live in any period of the world, in any time, any part of history, I would like to be about five, six years older. So I could have really made the most out of the 80s music and actually experienced and participated in it instead of just being a kid stuck in my bedroom saying, man, I wish I could get a uh, get a ride to the Black Flag show, but I can't. So I'll just sit here and listen to the Dead Milkmen for a while. Right. So that's that's me. You know, I grew up in a uh, college town, so we had a very very good radio station. Uh, Friday nights was metal nights. Uh, Saturday there was a uh, punk rock show that just cracked my world wide open. Um, and that's how I kind of came to the world of punk rock and metal. And so then eventually you end up becoming a, a music critic. Yeah, yeah, eventually. I graduated with a journalism degree, and I basically graduated and wiped my butt with it. 
you know, uh, I decided I wanted to do other things besides write. Writing was very difficult for me because I wasn't very disciplined about it. So I tried doing everything else I could possibly do with my life. Uh, I tried being a suit guy. I tried dropping out, being a bartender, waited tables, bar backed, all that stuff. But uh, long story short, just writing kept calling back to me and kept dragging me back through a lot of uh, a lot of remarkable hack- happenstances. I wound up back in school. I uh, went to a I was in a doctoral program for about ten minutes at a very prestigious, very nice Catholic university. Didn't work out very well, but I wound up back in a master's program, and I, I really focused on being a music writer. And this was back in like 1999, 2000, when the business was very, very different. Right. But I, I did that because, you know, back then it was hard to get music, and it was expensive to get music. So I found myself constantly reading music reviews in magazines, uh, newspapers, and I think, oh, this record sounds interesting. So I would go out and spend sixteen, eighteen dollars on the CD, and it sounded like uh, like poop. We'll say it wasn't always good. So after years and years of that experience of reading a record review that made me expect one thing and then buying the CD, right? I thought, who are these people that do this? And you know what? If anybody is going to do this, I think I would like to get in on this racket. And I think if given the opportunity, I think I could do this job at least as poorly as these people are. Well, I've got to uh, disagree with you. I think this book on uh, Slayer's landmark album, Rain and Blood, is really an excellent read. Uh, Very, very um, page turning and and, uh, grabs the grabs the reader by the throat, which I think is appropriate for a band like Slayer. But um, thank you for. Yeah, you're welcome for people who may not know about this great 33 and a third series I was speaking of earlier. There are, um, there are short books that are about 100, 150 pages that are dedicated to one single album by different rock acts. So um, if you want to look down the list here inside the, in, inside the book, when you buy DX's book, you'll see that, for example, bands like um, U2, the Beastie Boys, so on and so on, Guns N' Roses have all had their, um, their albums, um, covered in this series. And so uh, one of the things we talked about in our pre-interview was that uh, there was quite a few proposals that had been sent in on the time when they called for proposals where your uh, proposal was accepted, something like 200, and they only accepted 20. And so... No, I think I, it was closer to 500. Really? Okay. Yes. But, well, yeah, I, I got in at a point when it was really reaching critical mass. Everybody wanted to do one of these, and uh, you know, for whatever reason, they accepted my pitch. Right. And um, and so I wanted to talk about two things. One about that experience of of trying to uh, get in on the series, and then uh, maybe working with the editors, and also why Slayer Rain and Blood, because I do want to spend time obviously talking about the content of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the first thing, as as you said, it's a series of books. Each one of them, the thirty three and a third series, each one of them is by a different author. Each one of them is about a different classic album. So um, it's comparable to what you get with a soundtrack album in that the books are about or from or inspired by certain classic records. So some of them are like mine. My book takes a documentary approach to uh, the album at hand. We talk about how it was made, how it came to be, who the people are. And then we talk to a whole host of people that think it's a good album and a significant work of art and why. 
So that's what we do. Uh, some of them are novellas inspired by like a Smith's album or right. a Black Sabbath album. Some of them are book length interviews like the DJ Shadow one has an excellent, amazing introductory essay. And then he just talks to the guy for something like 80 pages. And some of those are a grab bag of the two. Some of them are very straight technical, musical, logical analyses like the Radiohead one. Um, I don't understand that book, but that's not a bad thing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a guy that is really going into literally sonically how the Radiohead album works. Right. Uh, but you know, mine again is a journalistic account. Right. Mostly, it's it's a documentary. You know, what is this album? Where did it come from? How did this happen? Right. And, and so, in writing one of these books, I imagine uh, the author has to be extremely passionate about their topic to talk off for 150 pages about a single um, LP. And so, why Slayer's Rain and Blood? Yeah, you know, my my that's a very good question. My pitch almost literally started off by saying. Listen, uh, you have this book at the point, at this point, there were maybe 50 books in the series. Now I think it's closer to 70. Right. I said, listen, you have all these books, all these classic albums. There are no real true metal albums included in it. So I think you should do Slayer's Rain and Blood. No, no, no. Now, please keep listening. Take me seriously. I mean, the pitch almost literally said that. I know we're talking about Slayer for your very prestigious series about classic albums, but I really think if you're going to do a metal album, this is the one to do. Now, the reasons for that are that, you know, number one, it is a great album, arguably the best metal album, arguably one of the more, not arguably, it is one of the more influential metal albums. But... The way I see the 33 and the third series, and some of the authors would definitely have a different perspective on it, and they're not wrong, but I see it as documenting where these albums fall into the grand, wide story of the history of rock and roll. And uh, Slayer and the people that made this album, the team behind it, they uh, at the time they were successful people they were maybe remarkable people but they would go on to become gigantic people right uh go ahead no right that's the perfect segue and that's what um i was going to get to next is that for people who don't know um we're going to talk about uh, thrash metal later in the uh interview which is a i guess a subgenre of, of heavy metal which i'll let dx riff about and tell everyone about but um the really remarkable thing about the record right from the get-go, is that it came out on Def Jam Records um, yes. and produced by Rick Rubin, who was at the time best known for producing bands like the Beastie Boys and LL Cool J, and yet he ends up producing one of the most extreme heavy metal acts of the 1980s. Exactly. I mean, at the time, Rick Rubin was in the popular eye, and as far as anybody knew, he was just some rap dude from New York. I mean, to put it in, in common parlance, just some long-haired white guy that somehow made rap music Rap music at that stage, of course, um, the debate was still open whether or not rap was real music or not. I mean, obviously it is, but at the time people were saying, ah, this new stuff, I don't know. So popularly you had Rick Rubin, who the hell is he, rap music, what the hell is that? As it turned out, Rick Rubin would be quite a producer. Right. Um, if you do the math, as I have, Rick Rubin has worked with about 10% 
of the groups who have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's amazing. So, I mean, he went on to work with Johnny Cash. Um, you know, his first album with Johnny Cash took an American icon, made him relevant again in a new age. Right. Uh, I think that is as good as music gets. Certainly, he worked with the Dixie Chicks, made the Red Hot Chili Peppers who they are, did all kinds of great things. But at the time, he was just, again, some New York rap guy. Right. So this was the first time that Rick Rubin really showed the world that he could be more than a rap producer. Right. And and um, the thing I think about Rick Rubin now is that, um, as you said, he's become, I think he's a, a president at Columbia Records. He's at the very, very peak of the, uh, or what's left of the music industry today. Um, but he's also become, and this might be a little bit of a music geek stuff, but we'll, we'll go with here anyway, is that he's that is become, what we are here yeah, for. Exactly. Bro. He is, he, he's become a really a polarizing figure about the sound of the albums he makes and um, about the way these albums are being produced now and the way he's decided to produce them and, and oversee the mixing of them. And I say that too, because rain and blood is almost uniformly called a brilliantly produced record, especially with the, the way that Ruben decided to produce it. And I'll let you talk about that. It is. It's interesting. Uh, as I, as I'm describing some detail in the book, Rick Rubin, although he is one of the landmark producers and he has a resume that is, as good as anybody else who has ever worked in the business, if not better. Uh, he has almost, in, he, in his own words, he has almost no technical ability. He does not sit at the board and twist knobs, and he hasn't um, kept abreast of technology as it's gone from Pro Tools to, uh, or from analog to Pro Tools. He's not a technical producer. He's not an engineer. I mean, when you say record producing, as you know, that's it's kind of an ambiguous term. Different people mean different things by it. So Rick Rubin is not the guy that makes an album sound like it does. That said, he is the guy who sort of tells people how to make an album. Uh, with Slayer's case, their album Before Rain and Blood was, like many classic metal albums, um, like Exodus is Bonded by Blood, it was just slathered in digital reverb. It doesn't doesn't sound so solid by today's standards. And Ruben's idea with Slayer was to just take it and make it raw, do essentially what he did with the Johnny Cash record or the first one, and to just strip down the sound and present the band at its very, uh, very most basic elemental form. So that's what he does. Now, as the years would go on, he would embrace other recording techniques and some of those... Uh, as you said, some of those are more popular than others. Um, Rick Rubin is one of the people that really helped shepherd in the age of overcompression. Right. You know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, is it One Hot Minute? Is that the album? I think that's I, right. I, or Californication. Yeah, Californication. I blocked that out of my conscious mind. No, One Hot Minute is a very good album, actually. that's I can talk about that all day. Californication really... It took the sound of the band and um, just compressed the hell out of it and over-modulated it. And it's, you know, it, it's a sound that is by design too big to be contained on a recording. So it's it goes from having the nice organic breathability of a record like Blood Sugar Sex Magic to just sounding like... Right. You know, I mean, if you've ever been in a bar 
and uh, it goes from like a Led Zeppelin record to a modern record and you can understand the old record and feel it kind of breathe and groove and then the modern record comes on and it's just a wall of noise and it's distorted that's what we mean by compression and uh, Rick Rubin helped make that possible and I don't know if that was a good thing right I I just had a the, the previous podcast I had done, which will be up on the uh, site, New Books and Pop Music, uh, in a week or so, I did with Greg Cott, who's the uh, music critic really? of the Chicago Tribune, who I know you know. And, yeah, he, yeah. he pointed One out that um, the uh, the genesis of this was the idea that, well, if we make the actual sound of an album louder, in other words, if you turn it on and you have your volume on five, uh, it's going to be louder than, say, an album that was made in the 1970s person just of the volume coming out of the speakers that it's more likely that in a car or in a club that someone will hear it and so you sort of make it like commercials are on tv where you you know you have the the sound at a certain level watching the show and then you're like oh why is it so loud and you realize well the commercial actually is louder the volume of the commercial is actually louder and that's what ruben pioneered is this this notion of loudness uh, yeah. which as you said is makes all the levels of all the different instruments sound kind of the same so instead of having maybe a soft cymbal in the background and a then a, the you know loud crash of a guitar chord everything is sort of equally loud yeah exactly and that approach has become so commonplace in art um pretty much everybody in the music business says well everybody else does it so we have to do it and that's not how art should work you know art should not be about saying oh, well, everybody else is doing this, so we need to change our sound and our style and our look and our presentation. Um, Compression is bad, and it's a bad idea, I think. Right, right. Well, I could talk about that all day, but we'll we'll step uh, towards the next uh, piece that I want to get to about this is that um, about the LP itself and then, of course, the book, which is really the most uh, important thing here. Um, Can you explain to our listeners the significance of thrash metal within the heavy metal genre and sort of um, get them thinking about what it is. I mean, one thing that came to mind when I was uh, preparing for this interview with you is that uh, I looked up the average beat per minute on the Slayer record, which I know you know the number. I'll let you tell the listeners that um, approximately what it is. But uh, I looked up the song Beatles uh, song Birthday, which probably everyone knows that song today is your birthday by the Beatles. Yeah, pretty that, fast. Pretty fast. That's 139 beats per minute. Wow. Wow. Slayer uh, on this album, they average around 200, a little bit over, you know, 220 on, on the good moments. So, break so yeah, that's, uh, that's a lot faster. So, yes. Can you explain how that all feeds, mixes together and creates thrash metal? Okay. So thrash metal at the time was the heaviest form of metal. We're talking about the mid to late 80s. As I say in the book, Thrash metal was the ultimate integration of heavy metal technique. You have uh, heavy chords, uh, you have heavy metal subject matter, but then it's played with a, a certain ferocity that was more more associated with hardcore punk rock, not just punk itself, like Sex Pistols and whatever you might describe as punk, like the damn, but hardcore bands like DRI. Uh, bands like Minor Threat, they were just blazing completely fast and maybe didn't have the technical chops of a band like Merciful Fate, but could just thrash it to death. Just bam, 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 go, 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 go. Uh, you know, play even faster uh, than a band like Slayer did. So technical uh, or on a technical level, what thrash metal did was it took 
the technical proficiency from classic rock that a lot of the thrash musicians grew up listening to. And it took that heavy metal intent and intensity and the additional speed and dark subject matter and really harnessed the energy and the unbridled uh, approach of hardcore punk rock to create a new form of metal that just made you go crazy. When I say made you go crazy, you know, it's evidenced with the advent of what we call mosh pits now, you know, at the time mosh was mostly a metal word. Uh, at the time, most people called it slam dancing, but prior to thrash metal at metal shows, you know, prior to Slayer, really, if you were at a metal show and you were getting as into it as you could, you were banging your head, you were throwing up the devil horns with Slayer playing that fast and that well, people just went nuts. You know, that's when you started having mosh pits. That's when you started having people stage diving. That's when you started having people going berserk left and right and really going nuts. You know, as Rick Rubin uh, said at a tribute that he had read at Jeff Hanneman's recent memorial service, he said, uh, people go nuts or I think it was people uh, lose their stuff, we'll say. People lose their stuff at a Slayer concert, and rightfully so. Yeah, and I you know, I, I was thinking back on your book, and of course there's um, the great anecdote that you have in there about um, the way crowds reacted to Slayer. You, you mentioned that you know one thing is you could actually, you know, be, the crowd would be so tightly pressed together that you could take your feet off the ground near the front of the stage and you would actually move with the people without even being, um, being uh, having your feet planted and... Uh, the the other anecdote that that comes to mind is the the um, story you tell about the concert in Los Angeles where there were seats on the floor of the um, venue which would prevent people from slam dancing or moshing as you put it and yet the Slayer fans just put it upon themselves to basically rip up the seats or take up the seats and pile them into a gigantic pile and then <laughs> go ahead and uh, have a space to mosh yeah exactly I mean thrash metal was music so intense that it it pro- <sighs> You literally could not physically ignore it. You know, I think some of the greatest music just grabs you and makes you react to it. Now, for you, that might be a Radiohead album. It could be an Of Mice and Men album. Whatever you like. You know, the music that is best for you, the music that you love, just grabs you and makes you respond to it. And for metalheads, I mean, it made you physically go nuts. Now, I mean, obviously, you can control that, but... If you were into it, then you wanted to go nuts. Right. That was fun. Right. If you like that kind of thing. Right. And and um, something else that I think might be worth talking about a bit is to give people perspective is um, you as a historian of music know very well that in the 1970s, bands like Grand Funk, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, these were bands that were considered heavy metal. So if you ask people in 1973 what heavy metal was, those were probably three of the bands that would have come to mind. Um very different than what heavy metal came became by the time Slayer, uh, Metallica, Exodus, and some of these other thrash metal bands hit the scene by 84, 85, 83. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the time, the, the debate was still going on. Well, is Zeppelin metal? Is Van Halen metal? Well, in retrospect, no. But at, at the time, that was, you know, what was considered metal was uh, a whole different conversation. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. Um you know, the next thing that I thought would be worth talking about for people is the the subject matter of the songs. And so Slayer's album is very short, very fast. It's 29 minutes long. 
um, which at the time was, uh, you know, was pushing it in terms of how much music you give for the dollar. That was, that was really cutting it short, but their subject matter, I think was actually as I want to try to, let me try to choose my words carefully as disturbing to some people and maybe as enticing to some people. And so if you go down the, the subject matter of some of the songs, it, it's not exactly stuff that's uh, family friendly. No, no, not at all. It is a, a bloody album from start to finish. The, uh, the the different topics I, I was thinking about the album this morning and thinking about it, it was almost as if uh, the uh, members of Slayer were trying to put together what you would call an elevator pitch for different horror movies that they, they, they could offer. So you know you have a, a two minute song on uh, the Holocaust, which we'll we'll talk about at length. About serial killers, another one, uh, witch hunts, Satanism, a great plague, and then the fall of heaven, of course. Yeah, I mean this is an album with. A uh, very high body count, very, very high body count. You know, that's how, that's exactly how I look at it. I think that the album stands as a treatise on the grim extremes of human nature and human history. I mean, some of the songs are imaginative and fantastic and um, less realistic. Uh, and some are just. As we'll talk about, I mean, it starts off with a song about the Nazi Holocaust. But it was interesting talking to the band. You know, I, I went to them and I said, so if you look at the subject matter, when you examine the songs and what you write about it, clearly the album is a statement about the darker corners of human nature, correct? And they would say almost to a man, oh, no, not really. So I would say, well, what would you say it's about then? I don't know. Uh, we just like to write about dark stuff. Uh, you know, my conversation with Carrie King was, was almost literally that. I wasn't talking in that inflated tone, but I said, well, do you see the album as a collection of uh, you know, statements about humanity and the dark side of it? And he said, eh, no, that's just the 10 songs we had. Right. So the difficulty of writing about or writing a book about Slayer, even with their uh, full cooperation in it, they didn't have much to say about it. You know, as musicians, they're much closer to athletes. They don't sit down and think, well, you know, this ball is coming toward me, so I really need to make a grab that is not unlike Poseidon rising from uh, the deeps and making a, a statement that will be remembered for right. all time. They, they, As artists, they don't think like that. They just do what they do. And right. They're, you know, on one hand, they are refreshingly not introspective. And on the other hand, yeah, damn it, tell me something. Right. You know? Right. So it took it took a lot of coaxing to get uh to get out of them what I did from them. But but uh, but surely um they were meaning to be provocative. I I don't know that they set out to be pro provocative. I don't know that they did it in purpose, on purpose at Rain and Blood. Now I mean later on they did things that certainly stirred the pot. I mean one of the most enduring and visible Slayer icons is the uh, the Art Deco eagle that has the, uh, the Slayer logo in it. Right. The eagle is literally and directly based on um, the Nazi Germany um, emblem. Right. You know, no doubt. Um, evil, evil political regime, probably the worst that the human race has ever seen so far. But they had some cool iconography. So Slayer and Rick Rubin kind of picked up on that. 
So they did things to provoke people, right. but I mean, were they sitting down to make a grand statement? I don't think so. Right, right. And of course, I think about their fan club, which was called the Slaytanic Wehrmacht after yes. the German army in World War II. And, and yeah, I mean, I think obviously uh, you have to leave it to the artist and to you as the as the critic as and as the person who interviewed them to sort of take it for their word. But yes, it was certainly not. Uh, yeah, I and mean, were they neutral. needling people? It wasn't neutral subjects. Yeah, yeah, I and mean, were they needling people? Certainly. Um, you know, on what level did they mean to needle them? I, I think they meant to bother them, and uh, that's about it. Right. Uh, yeah, and you know, um, the X the thing as a fan, I grew up a fan of uh, heavy metal and hard rock. And, uh, you know, when you would end up getting a, a black Sabbath record or a, I guess a CD or probably a cassette is what I probably saw in the eighties, you know, you might see uh, something that looks sort of spooky or haunting. And you knew that the members of black Sabbath all walk wore crosses and they were accused of being Satanists by some people. And then, um, I'm a little bit older than you. So I can sort of remember in elementary school hearing that the band kisses, Knights was actually right, exactly was actually <laughs> right stood for knights in Satan's service, but you you know you sort of knew on one level that you know that really probably wasn't true. They probably weren't Satanists, and in fact, Ozzy would come out and say Ozzy Osbourne of Black Sabbath would come out and say, "Well, we're not Satanists," and you sort of knew that there was a little cartoon aspect to Kiss, and you knew it wasn't actually anything to do with Satanism. But um, when you read the Slayer lyrics, I have to tell you, and yeah. uh, a, a song like uh, "Jesus Saves," which is would be blasphemous to people who are Christians. No question about it. People, I mean, even, you know, even people who would, wouldn't maybe call themselves um, strong Christians, people of, of faith, which I would include myself in. It's, it's somewhat blasphemous. And uh, you can go down the line um, with a song like uh, rain and blood, which is of course playing on the, the word R E I G N rain, it, that it's going to be raining blood as, as heaven is basically undone. Um, pretty provocative. Yeah, I mean, thrash metal, again, you know, what marked thrash metal? Thrash metal was the point where it became scary. Um, and this is the point where the PMRC kind of became involved. I mean, it's ridiculous in retrospect to think that the PMRC was up the Parents Music Resource Center, which was headed up by Tipper Gore, the wife of future presidential candidate Al Gore and vice president. Uh, it's ridiculous to think that the PMRC was upset about twisted sister. Right. Um, but you can see how they might've been rubbed the wrong way by Slayer. Slayer's previous album, Hell Awaits, which was just a scary piece from the artwork to the music it delivered has a song called necrophiliac in which the uh, protagonist of the tale not only violates an underage corpse, but impregnates it. Right. Uh, and hilarious satanic hijinks ensue. I uh, think resolution of that song, Satan himself is so offended by it that he comes up from hell, grabs the guy and drags his soul to the, uh, the pits of the abyss. So Slayer was writing about things that were offensive to the devil. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, it's, you're, you're giving us all a good history lesson as a historian. I always, uh, try to try to, uh, to, to, uh, keep these podcasts as much on uh, history as possible. That for those people who don't know, um, is that in the 1980s, there was a fairly vigorous political campaign to try to rate and then 
I guess in, in the, the end game would have been to censor subject matter of certain albums. So the same way you have a movie rating that would say, oh, this is a PG movie, this is an R movie, this is an X movie. Um, you would have a rating system that would say certain albums are not appropriate for children. And, of course, Slayer's Rain and Blood is stamped with that parental guidance. or a, I can't remember the exact word, but there's a big black logo, which, of course, only served to make the album more enticing to children under the age of 18. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you see the the parental advisory lyrics, this was the ultimate result of that uh, that organization or that movement because it was really a larger movement at the time. But you know, in theory, it would stop parents from having their children buy the album. Right. In practice, all it did was it said this album is hellaciously gnarly. Right. It is so offensive you probably can't handle it. But if you're looking for something extreme to check out. Why don't you check out this? Right, right. I want to come back to the PMRC, but you, you give me the perfect segue, of course, into the idea that um, I can imagine as a teenager, you're 14 and you have your allowance money, but you don't have enough money to buy all the records you want or all the tapes you want. And so you tell your mom, hey, mom and dad, I want the Slayer <laughs> Rain and Blood album. And imagine a world where there's no parental rating system and the, um, the album isn't actually um, going to be uh, – um, with a, a sticker on the front, I, I still think people would have been able to tell from the album cover that it was not appropriate for their children. Yeah, in this particular case, you would think that. Um, you want to talk a little bit about the the uh, record itself, the cover? Oh, the cover of the album, I think, is one of the landmarks of uh, heavy metal art. I mean, it is a uh, it's a scene from the abyss that, as I say in the book, it's one of the few pieces of classic heavy metal artwork that would not look utterly ridiculous. Ridiculous next to a Hieronymus Bosch painting or something by uh, by Blake. I mean, it is a. I believe it was a multimedia piece. Uh, there's some painting in it. There's some tracing that took place over some various uh, photographs, and it is a, a picture of you know, if not Satan himself. The artist didn't want to identify specific details about it, so it would be a little bit more alive in our imaginations but i mean it's a picture of a demonic uh figure with a goat's head being carted through hell where you know people are immersed in pits of blood and fire um somebody on the album cover i think looks a lot like jesus right uh, you have some figures that look like popes certain religious figures over the years uh, certain religious icons it's a scary scene uh, if you look, cl- the album, in fact, the album cover artwork is so graphic and so dense that people tend to overlook the fact that one of the characters is holding a dismembered penis. Right. I mean, that's one of the things that you have to, it's always the last thing that people bring up. They talk about all these different things on the cover. Oh, yeah. And by the way, the guy is holding a dismembered penis. If that tells you what you're looking at or what you're. In right. this case, not looking at. Now, the name of the artist escapes me, and you can remember. Uh, Larry Carroll. Larry Carroll. And uh, I thought this was an interesting tie in as well, is that, you know, you kind of imagine that someone like Larry Carroll is going to be this, you know, long haired, pot smoking artist, and uh, maybe he was, but uh, sort of a guy who was more of a, a heavy metal artist, but he had had quite a career as a, uh, a cartoonist and as an artist. It had his work in the New York Times and some other fairly prestigious publications. Yeah, I mean, he's, a guy like that was a real artist. You know, he'd, he'd done a lot of political illustrations. Uh, a lot like the guy who did uh, Gerald. Is it Scaife, the guy that did the Pink Floyd uh, artwork? 
uh, from the wall. Oh, um, right. It's that now, yes. But he had that kind of career. You right. Know, he was a rock and roll guy who was hanging out with his rock buddies. I mean, right. He was a parent who had bills to pay and had actual thoughts and technique. And uh, he just happened to take on some, uh, some heavy metal artwork and it worked out pretty well. This is a kind of a question that may be a bit of an aside, but it just came to mind is that, um, you know, we, uh, are having a, a, a debate in the, in the country today about the power of government to be able, be able to read your letters and, uh, your emails, excuse me, re- listen to your phone calls. And, and so, um, the PMRC for, for what it was worth had some congressional weight behind it. There were hearings and they dragged Frank Zappa. And as you mentioned, uh, Dee Snyder, the lead singer of, uh, of, um, Twisted Sister up on uh, Capitol Hill. And so, um, but in thinking about it, I, you know, as a parent myself, I mean, I'm not a hundred percent sure that, that putting a sticker on a record wasn't a small price to pay for artistic freedom to sort of let parents know about the, the subject matter. Cause I, um, you know, as a, as a teenager, of course, this type of material had its appeal to me, but I'm not sure I'd want my 13 year old daughter, um, spending her, her nights before going to bed reading the uh, lyrics to uh, Raining Blood? Yeah, I mean, what is... I, I, I certainly can't claim credit for the phrase, but what is America if not a marketplace of ideas in action? Right. And in a marketplace, you need some consumer guidance. And that is the idea that drew me to being a rock critic. What am I really looking at here? Do I want to spend my money on because at the time, if you wanted to get art, generally, mostly, most of the time, you had to spend some money on it. Right. So if America is a marketplace of ideas, maybe you need a little bit of consumer guidance. I certainly agree with that. Right. Uh, yeah. People are not outside movie theaters up in arms saying, why should this be called rated PG-13 and PG? You know, it should just be art, man. Right. Well, you're spending however much money to go experience it and consume it. What can I expect? Right. And the thing too, I should throw in here too, um, which I, I certainly, you remember DX is the, uh, well, there were actually a number of murders or crimes or the murders that ended up being tied to heavy metal music in one way or the other. So, um, I'm not remembering the specific cases, so I'm not. Yeah, saying- it, it was it was a, a timely subject. I mean, right. um, the, the guy who just died, Richard Ramirez, if I remember the uh, his name right, the Night Stalker, Correct. was a California serial killer who had been an ACDC fan. Right. So people tried to use that fact that he liked a certain hard rock band to paint all of heavy metal as uh, you know being the kind of work that would inspire a serial killer. Right. And I think there were cases like that, the Judas Priest suicide allegations that you could somehow, number one, you would, number two, could uh, embed a backward message into an album that people could somehow subconsciously reverse process and uh, carry through on. It's ridiculous. Right, right. And I that's really... But it was a, not unpopular. No, no. And I think For, that's a really important point that you're making is that in retrospect... Right. It seems rather absurd that that people would seriously think that, um, yeah, an ACDC album could could actually be the main motivating factor before behind someone becoming a serial killer. But uh, nonetheless, I mean, it, it was this was a very this was an idea that was taken seriously by a lot of serious people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at, at the time in Salem, um, it, a lot of people were very wrapped up in the idea that these people could really be witches. Right. Um, so it happens. Right. Right. 
Well, let's turn our attention then to um, the the fallout from the record when Rick Rubin, who is this um, prodigy as a producer, he's had a success and he takes the album to CBS. So it's on his Def Jam imprint, which is a rap label. And it's yeah, Rick, be- Rick Rubin, who, you know, on one level, he's kind of a, a scuffy looking guy who dresses in leather, has long hair, uh, wears sunglasses around. Uh, but on the other hand, he's from a very well-to-do Jewish family. Right. And, you know, though he might not be observant, you know, he is certainly from a Jewish background. Right, which we're going to get to in a second. So he he brings this to CBS, to BlackRock, right, and to the building, and, and sort of lays it out of the table. And said, right, CBS a- being the major label that had picked up Def Jam for distribution. Right. So okay. that's the, the can, corporate time. Can you talk about what ensued from there? Uh, they said, are you kidding, basically? Uh, CBS had a... Uh, had a uh, Jewish president, or uh, I forget his exact title at the time, but the guy who ran CBS Records um, was Jewish. And that in itself was not the only hangup, but, you know, he also had concerns about selling this kind of thing. He said, listen, my shareholders are uh, are Jewish, and in general, are people going to accept this kind of um, grisly song about Nazism? in the marketplace. I don't think we can sell this. This isn't the kind of thing that we want to be associated with as a major big company. Right. And, and um, I should have mentioned this earlier, but can you, can you uh, talk a little bit about um, the opening track on Rain and Blood? So people really understand what we're talking about. When we mean it's about Nazism. I mean, this isn't really just about waving a Nazi flag. There's some pretty specific. No, absolutely. The, the first song, um, you know, if, the last song on the album, Raining Blood, is not the most famous metal song of all time than the first song is, Angel of Death. Um, Angel of Death is about the Nazis' uh, Joseph Mengele, uh, you know, somebody who had been certified as a doctor and a surgeon who worked at the concentration camp Auschwitz and performed some um, you know, almost unfathomable uh, medical experiments upon people that went through the, uh, the Auschwitz uh, concentration camp. So this, the song is about him. The song gets a bad rap in the history of metal because people say that it glorifies um, Nazis or that it doesn't denounce them strongly. Um, even people that tend to come down on the middle on that particular charge say that it's an objective look at it. But it contains negative lyrics you know it says uh, it has the lyrics sickening ways to achieve the holocaust uh rancid angel of death flying free so at no point are they glorifying um auschwitz the nazis mangala and saying this is awesome look at how high this body count is dude that guy was rad you know at no point do they say that they they clearly denounce him if you're paying attention which most people do not so it caused a problem right and um you know, I, I wanted to just briefly read from your, from your book is that you have this great quote on page 112 in the book where you say, or words by you, I shouldn't say it's a quote, it's your words, uh, Slayer, warn us. When authority goes wrong, your entire family can be slaughtered, their bones crushed to dust and, dust and forgotten in mud. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, Slayer has an actual message underneath all this grisly, bloody um, fantastic imagery uh, that you find elsewhere in the in the album. I'm not saying the first album or the first song, Angel of Death. That's not fantastic. But underneath all of this uh, bloody spectacle, Slayer do have some real 
messages. Right. I mean, you turn on the news and you don't always hear about the, the most terrible stuff going on. And Slayer will tell you about that. So how does the album eventually come out? So uh, clearly CBS says, no, thank you, washes their hands of the album. When, what happens next? Right. Uh, CBS didn't want to distribute it, so uh, they took it elsewhere. Geffen Records wound up picking it up. Now, Geffen also had some key Jewish people in it, but they decided that uh, they could make it work, basically. So, um, yeah. Again, I think it's important just to to emphasize the the Jewish connections of these people because they were able to see past it uh, and see what Slayer were actually seeing. You know, interestingly, as a, as a footnote, at the time, Def Jam owed CBS Records four albums. And when Slayer um, was not going to be distributed, Def Jam owed CBS another album. Right. Uh, so in order to fulfill that obligation, they signed Public Enemy, <laughs> the iconic rap group that was recently in the last month or so inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right. Now, KRS-One is one of the all-time greats. Um, KRS-One is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Who you know in life is important. Uh, if, if Public Enemy had not been signed to Def Jam, if Slayer had not written this particular incendiary uh, controversial song, would Public Enemy have been signed to Def Jam? Maybe not. Would Public Enemy be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame today? Maybe not. So that that's an interesting uh, side note about the, uh, what happened about what happened because right. of this particular controversial right. song. Right. So the so the album comes out. It, it tops out, if I remember correctly, at number ninety four in the Billboard charts. Certainly, yeah, uh, which was a respectable showing at the time. I mean, now obscure metal bands like. Um, as I Lay Dying, wind up crashing the top 10 because they're just selling a few records because records don't sell in this day and age. Right. But crashing the top 94, that was, you know, on one hand, not very impressive, but for a metal band on a rap label. Right. Yeah, good show. Right, and with obviously a decidedly uncommercial sound, uncommercial subject matter, I mean, down the line, uncommercial, un- uncommercial album cover, um, right, hitting number 94 was probably, a, they were probably celebrating at Def Jam about this. So what's the, the legacy of Slayer's music, or heavy metal. What's the legacy about this album? Can you speak a little bit about your thoughts on that? Yeah, this album redefined what we know of as heavy metal. You know, it made the velo- it stepped up the velocity a lot. I mean, people had been playing that fast in, in isolated incidents, but this was the album that really made people say, "Okay, metal has to be that fast." Right. Uh, it, it spawned. Yeah, arguably, you can get into the. Uh, the chronology of it, but pretty much it spawned movements called death metal that was much more technically exacting, where you were playing even more um, more precisely and even faster. But um, you know, in some ways, it, it broke metal to a whole new audience. Traditionally, before that point, metal and punk uh, had been separate and kind of warring tribes against each other. But this made metal palatable to a punk audience. So people that liked punk, you know, the kind of, yeah, even the people that weren't 
street hardcore kids, you know, not, not the kind of tattooed guys that went to uh, CBGBs necessarily, but the people that were more intellectual and open to punk rock on a cerebral level were able to kind of embrace metal and, and gave, it gave them a gateway into metal a little bit. I have, I had uh, two, two questions I want to ask you based on what you just said. Number one um, is about crossover. Can you talk a little bit about that? I just actually did a podcast with Steve Waxman, which is up at the new books and pop music.com website where he basically wrote a whole book about the, the concept of crossover. Um, and specifically though, the late 1980s seems to be that moment where you, as you said, punk and metal converge. Can you talk about the convergence there? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, one of the other movements that this helped spawn and certainly uh, helped spark, or you know, if, if not directly, then was partially responsible for, was a movement called Crossover um, that kind of took the most exciting elements of hardcore and the most exciting elements of metal and merged them into um, uh, a new movement. I mean, Suicidal Tendencies was already doing their things, but bands like Suicidal Tendencies, DRI, Slayer, later the Crumb Suckers, uh, Cryptic Slaughter, who already existed, but they kind of reached a whole new level after 85, 86, when albums like this became popular. So if you would look at a metal crowd in 1984, it was all long hair guys, just headbanging. But if you went to a metal show in 87, 88, now you had some punk guys, now you had long hair guys, now you had long hair guys moshing or doing their equivalent of slam dancing. Right. Um, it, it was a whole different scene after that point. Right. The, uh, the other question I was going to ask you was about um, punk rock being the darling of rock writers and being the darling of... I think of a lot of people who consider themselves serious consumers of music. So if you ask a music critic, I think this was your point you made um, in one of your, your blog posts, which we'll come to later, um, is that you know if there's a, a favorite group out there it, uh, that's a punk, early punk group, it's the Stooges. And we don't need to talk about the Stooges, but do you think heavy metal is kind of written off by music critics? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, let's, let's face it, how you look makes a difference in how you are treated in this life. You know, um, is that right? Is it fair? No, but it does make a difference. And heavy metal guys have a certain look to them, whether it was in the 80s and 90s, having long hair and wearing denim jackets, or whether it's maybe having shorter hair now, but having a giant tattoo going from your uh, from your wrist all the way up to your shoulder maybe piercings or gauges uh, metal people tend to be looked down on not a lot of people look at heavy metal and give it the uh, artistic and intellectual uh, credit that it is due certainly yeah and i think the the look has a lot to do with it you know historically when you talk about heavy metal people people think of uh, Wayne's World, they think of Beavis and Butthead. Right. You know, they think of guys going, <laughs> that kicks ass. Right. And certainly there's some of that, but um, I know that a lot of the people that like um, Radiohead are not always the, the brightest bulbs. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. And uh, what comes to mind, of course, is the, you know, the, the, the lionization of the Sex Pistols. And fair enough, they are definitely a band that made a landmark album. But I think your book, which is a, a great read, does a um, excellent job of making the case that Slayer's album, Rain and Blood, is as influential as any of the other great um, albums that kind of created what you might call just hard and heavy music, for lack of a better term. 
Oh, thank you. You're, you're welcome. You're, you're quite welcome. Well-deserved. Um, and so in kind of wrapping things up here, we have uh, our traditional final question, which is about um, what you're up to now, what your current projects are, your, um, your writings. Uh, right now I'm working on a couple top secret book projects. I can't tell you much about. Uh, I write a web comic of all things. I, I write a comic strip that publishes twice a week for uh, a great website that I write for called Popdose, right. popdose.com. And that website is, uh, well, popdose.com. The web comic is called Suburban Metal Dad. It is about a guy who grew up a metalhead and now he lives in the suburbs and now he's a dad and now he has to contend with more mundane things than Megadeth. So every now and then he might you know, walk into the office and shout, Slayer! <laughs> Generally, he has to, uh, as I said, contend with mundane things uh, like dance recitals and friends posting inane stuff on Facebook. <laughs> he's not a Facebook guy. It sounds like it's a personal webcomic, but it is not. Um, you know, it's something that I'm doing uh, as a larger artistic exercise. One of my goals for the, the comic is that um, as you read it, you cannot learn anything about my direct day-to-day -day life. I don't know if it always succeeds, but I, I assure you it's not a personal webcomic. So if you have ever felt like you are the only person in your zip code, that owns any kind of release from the nuclear blast label. <laughs> this is for you. There you go. This is for you. Check it out. You can learn more about that at suburbanmetaldad.com or you can uh, see the post at popdose.com. Okay. And uh, we, we won't go into your... your and uh, I write for... Sorry. I, I, what was I going to say? I write for the uh, AV Club a little bit. I review podcasts for them. Uh, I think podcasting is the future. Podcasting is a lot more exciting to me than... Uh, a lot of music at this point. I think podcasting is the new indie rock, and who doesn't love indie rock? <laughs> there you go. I, yeah, I was going to say about your, your top secret projects. I, we can be, we can be all be assured that somewhere in some server farm in Utah, um, your, your information about your book is stored. So uh, let's just hope that uh, your your uh, your emails are never actually read by the government. But we'll, uh, the we'll NSA knows all about my secret. Evil plan. <laughs> that's okay. It, you know, I, that's that's a curious topic. But uh, when I see what Amazon.com does with my personal information and how well they can weaponize that to make me want to spend money, I, I don't know what the government can do worse than that. Right. Right, right. And of course, your, your book is available on uh, Amazon.com. Yeah, Amazon uh, is the best place for it. The book was recently translated into, uh, or translated, it was recently adapted as an audio book, in fact, and you can get that by Amazon.com or Audible.com. Oh, excellent. Did you do the uh, audio book for that? I did not. It was done by uh, a really great guy. He did the last uh, Stephen King audio book, and he sounds enough like me on a good day. If you think I sound bad here, he sounds enough like me on a good day that I forget that it's not me. So when I listen to it at certain points, I think, oh, that's good. I really nailed that phrase. That was, wait, no, no, that's not me. So he does an excellent job on it. And that runs four hours and 20 minutes. Wow. Yeah. It, in bringing that up, I have to say I have never spoken to anyone who um, I don't think on this series who's had their book adopted into an audio book, or maybe I never asked. So can you talk about how that, that all came to be? Did, did 33 and a third, excuse me, um, your publisher just come to you and say, uh, well, we're doing it? No, I have no idea how it came to be. It was just there one day. <laughs> 
Uh, you know, having having written this book, I have in some ways crossed the line from being a guy who writes about artists to being one of them. Right. Now, I'm not saying I'm an artist, but I can now relate to what goes on being at a label. Right. You, know, you think that your product you would be involved in certain aspects of its creation, promotion, right. distribution, but no. Right. Just one day you wrote a book, and one day, years and years and years later, a very awesome audio book of it exists. Right. How did it happen? I don't know. Well, we, we do have a couple it's magic, <laughs> black magic. Sorry, I started to talk across your power yeah, slayer. Slayer! <laughs> have a couple minutes left. Uh, the, um, you, you, you made me lose my composure, which is good. Um, but the thing I was going to say, made you lose your DX is, uh, you know, people write books. I've written a book. Lots of people write books, and they, you never really hear from it's readers too often. What's, you think about writing a book out there? Don't do it. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I haven't gotten rich. Um, but no, you should. I know. I know what you're working on. You should write a book. Everybody else, get out of it. <laughs> um, the uh, the question I had though, did you hear from a kind of in closing? Did you hear from a lot of fans after you wrote this book? This seems to be something that people feel passionately about. You know, it published in 2008, and the internet was certainly advanced at that point, but it was not as evolved as it is now. So even though I published it five years ago, I'm getting some of my most gratifying interaction now. Now that we live in the social media age, you know, people look me up on Facebook. I'm not a Facebook guy. I'm not a much more of a Twitter guy. But, you know, regularly I have people just randomly pop up on Twitter and say, hey, I read the book. I like it. And right. you can have a lot of really nice personal conversations with them. You know, I love answering questions about the book. You know, I love talking about it. So in this age, uh, you can really make that one-on-one -on -one connection with a lot of fans. And, uh, you know, every now and then you bump into somebody and they say, hey, are you the guy who did the thing? And, yes, I am. But if, if you're into Twitter, uh, you know, by all means, you can look me up on Facebook. Every now and then I find, like, messages that are two, three, four months old. I'm sorry. I'm trying to get better with that. Uh, I'm not being a jerk. I am a jerk. I'm not that kind of jerk, though. If you send me a Facebook message, I will get back to you eventually. But find me on Twitter. Uh, Slayer Book is the best way to get to me. Just Twitter slash Slayer Book. And uh, we'll wrap about it. I'll tell you anything you want to know. Excellent. Well, DX, it was a real pleasure to uh, to speak to you. I, I want to tell my audience uh, that uh, it was certainly the first time that anyone has ever yelled the, the uh, name of a band at a scream level on my my podcast, which I think is a good <laughs> innovation and, and it brings us to a, a new area of engagement with pop music, which is, I think, about enjoying uh, what you listen to and being passionate about it. And you certainly bring that passion to your writing. And uh, thank you. That's Welcome. what Slayer fans do. I mean, as I say in the book, I mean, 18-year-olds might like the Rolling Stones. You know, young people like you too. But Slayer fans, they carve the name of the band into their arm or their back or their head. So Slayer provokes uh, another response. I don't personally shout Slayer that often, but uh, I'm just illustrating how it is done amongst us. Uh, We'll give, we'll give you full artistic license. I appreciate that. And, <laughs> Thank uh, you for having me. It's no, a great show, and you are a good dude. I By listening to the show, you are supporting a good person. I Tell your friends. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, in closing, last thing I'll say is start with DX's book, Rain and Blood, and then work your way through the series and uh, grab some of these other books, and I think you'll find hey, them to be rewarding. Hey, pay attention to this host. I wish I could tell you what he's working on. He has a project that is so great.
when it comes out, people are going to love it. I, oh, it's going to be tremendous. Pay attention to the student. Thanks, DX. Hey, we'll speak <laughs> to you again you. soon. Thank you so much. If you want to come back on the show after you write your next top secret book, please, please do that. Have a good summer, Okay, brother. thanks Thank a lot. you for having okay. me. You've been listening to a conversation with DX Ferris about his book, Rain in Blood, which was published by Continuum Press in 2008. Please check back with new books and popular music again soon for the next episode or subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss another episode. I'm your host, Greg Renoff, saying thanks for listening.